Our New Testament lesson is from the letter to Colossians, and we're going to read the little thanksgiving that Paul writes to the saints at Colossae, beginning in chapter 1, verse 3. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learn from Epaphras, our beloved faithful servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the opportunity and the invitation. Uh, It's good to be ministering alongside one of your favorite ex-pastors, Esther Choi. Esther and I kind of bump into each other throughout the presbytery recently at ordination services. So it's good to be uh, with her and with all of you. I feel like I've had friends at First Presbyterian since... My earliest days, I came to Richmond in 1979, right out of seminary, and uh, got to know Jack Sadler. Jack, uh, some of you will remember Jack, who was very interested in global mission. We used to have lunch together and talk about missionaries and global mission. So it's been fun to keep up with uh, Jack and Charlie and Rosalind and various members as well. I love when we get a Sunday after Thanksgiving that isn't Advent. You know, usually this is Advent Sunday, the first Sunday. But every once in a while, there's a a Sunday in there that we can kind of think about Thanksgiving. I often preach some kind of mission sermon when I go as a guest, but I couldn't resist the possibility and the opportunity to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving today before we rush on to Christmas and forget about Thanksgiving. Yesterday, we had some of our family in the house from out of town, and I was watching football with my son-in-law, who's a JMU grad, so we were watching his game and not the Carolina State game, which was probably good. And it was a big football Sunday. I don't know if you're a football fan, but you know, when you look at all these athletic contests and sports and games, they all are bounded by rules. You know, a game might have a ball or something in it that you move, but there's always a rule. Who begins and who ends and who has the first move and who has the second move. And in football, of course, there's a coin toss. And then whoever wins the coin toss elects to receive the football or to kick it off. And then in basketball, there's a a jump ball or a tip off. And whoever wins the tip puts the ball in play first. And now baseball is a little more civilized The baseball convention is that the visiting team bats first and the home team bats second, which is actually an advantage. It looks like they're being generous by letting the visiting team go first. It's actually an advantage to go last. Even in indoor games, you have rules. In checkers, do you know which color goes first? You know, the early service did not do very well with this one either. Uh, (laughs) It's the black checkers that go first. How about chess? 
It's the white pieces that go first. Who moves first? That's the question I want to start with today in in life, in the game of life, in Christian discipleship, in our worship service. Who has the first move? Now, you probably don't have to cheat and look at your bulletin, but in worship, who has the first move? Years ago, I used to be part of a a collection of, of young ministers that would sit at the feet of Ben Lacey Rose. Some of you will remember that name. And Dr. Rose would question us about our ministerial practices and give us a little guidance. And I remember we were talking once about contemporary worship and um, traditional worship. And he said, well, you know, the worship service doesn't start with the announcements. Okay. The worship service starts with the call to worship. He said, God always has the first word. God calls us to worship. God summons us into his presence. God invites us to think about him and to praise his name. And I don't think I'd ever thought about it until he put the question to us. But surely that's right. God calls us to worship. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise and give thanks to him. Praise his name. God summons us. We answer back with a hymn of praise, with a prayer of confession, with praise and thanksgiving. You know, not all religions do it the same way we do in Christianity. Most religions offer the religious participant a way to approach God, entreat God, appease God. There's some kind of transaction that is worked out in most religions in the world. In Islam, I remember the first time I met a Muslim in a Muslim country. I was in Morocco in 1987. And we went into this little hotel and there was a man at the bar and he said, buy me a drink. And I said, well, aren't you a Muslim? He said, well, yes. I said, well, you can't drink, can you? He said, buy me a drink. (laughs) And we started talking about Islam and he said, well, here's the way it is. I do good deeds and I do bad deeds. And when we get to the end, I'm hoping that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds and God will accept me into paradise. And lots of religions have that transactional, you do this and hope it works out for the best. Or you bring sacrifices. You know, even in Buddhism, Buddhism doesn't actually worship a God. Buddhism is more a a set of meditation practices, the, the Buddha's fourfold path. But even in Buddhism, and I I learned this a couple years ago in Thailand, most of the homes have a little shrine in the front yard. And in that shrine, they take offerings, or they light candles, or they make sacrifices. And I said, what's that all about? Oh, I thought you didn't worship a god. Well, we want to make sure things turn out right. So if there are some spirits or gods we make a sacrifice to them or we bring an offering to them. That's the way much of the world's religions negotiate how you get through life. But it's really different with Christ followers, isn't it? We're a different kind of religion. You think of the Old Testament and the paradigmatic event for Old Testament Jews was the Exodus. And here are the children of Israel groaning under servitude in Egypt. And God delivers them through the Red Sea from Pharaoh and the chariots. 
And there's nothing they can do but receive that gift as God leads them through wilderness wandering and finally to the promised land. Or we come to the New Testament and we know that God the Father sent the Son and the Father and the Son sent the Spirit and God has done this work for us through the ministry of Jesus who died for our sins, who was raised to newness of life. God does all this before we even come to him, before we approach him, before we know him. It's not a matter of coming to him and doing a quid pro quo trade or offering a sacrifice or giving an offering. It's coming into his presence and realizing he's done all this for me. Now I respond. God has the first word. We have the second word. And what is that word? Come into his presence with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. The first thing we do is we receive his gifts with thanksgiving. It's one of the reasons this little holiday is so important. It's not just important because Virginia had the first Thanksgiving in 1619 at Berkeley, or that the pilgrims gave thanks in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620. Those are historical markers. But it's important because there's a day in which we say, this is important. Let's mark it and let's keep the feast. My wife and I had some international students over for Thanksgiving this year. And we had a student from Iran and a student from Greece and a student from China. And I asked them, as we often do, is there anything in your history, in your culture, in which you have a day set aside for Thanksgiving? Well, you know, there actually isn't. They have holidays. The Iranians have Nuruz, the New Year, the Spring Festival. And the Chinese have the Mid-Autumn Festival. And our Greek friend was a Greek Orthodox Christian. Uh, But it's something we ought to hold on to, not as a single day, but as a reminder that grace-filled people are grateful people. And we look for every opportunity to live that out. But if we're honest, don't we have to say that we struggle with the notion of radical grace? You know, we just had a baptism, and one of the wonderful things about an infant baptism is that the little child can't say the confession of faith and can't answer the questions. And it's kind of helpless, and the parents answer questions of faith on her or his behalf, and it reminds us that God comes to us with these gifts and this grace before we can understand it, before we can comprehend it, before we can articulate it, maybe even before we can receive it. But you can receive the water, and you can receive the promise, you can receive the prayer, you can receive the spirit. But isn't there something in you and me that says, I'd feel better if I could just earn a little of it? If it wasn't all just so all God and not me. There was just, if I could deserve it, And maybe some of us think we do deserve it or that we merit it or favor it. Well, if you struggle with that, the church has always struggled with that. All the way back to the Apostle Paul upbraiding the Galatians. Do you remember Paul writing to the Galatians? Romans is his big letter about grace and salvation and Galatians is his little letter about grace and salvation. And right in the middle of the book of Galatians, The Galatians have been having trouble 
accepting Gentile Christians, and they won't sit down at table with them. They're segregationists, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul says to them, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And then he talks to them about the law. You're not justified by the law. You're justified by Christ. The Galatians, some of the earliest Christians, struggled with this. And then not only them, but do you remember Martin Luther? One of the pioneers of our faith, our Reformation faith. We just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and the 95 Theses on the Door of Wittenberg, October 31st. 1517, 500 years ago, celebrated two years ago. And do you remember Luther struggled with this same question? How can God be gracious to me? He actually struggled on the other side of it. He didn't feel good enough for God to be gracious to him. The story is that he was at the communion table to celebrate his first communion, the Eucharist in the Roman Catholic world. And he trembled as he touched the bread. And he trembled as he touched the cup. And he almost fainted dead away. Because he thought, I'm not holy enough to do this ritual. How can God allow me to be his servant when I'm full of sin? His problem was grace couldn't penetrate him. And so he read through the Bible And he was reading yet again the book of Romans because he was giving lectures on Romans to university students. And he came to Romans chapter 1 and he was beginning to lecture on it. And he stumbled on this one little passage that he kept saying to himself, the just shall live by faith. And he wondered, how can that be? Romans 1, 15, 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. And here it is, verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith. The one who is righteous will live by faith. But he said, I'm not righteous. And then it dawned on him that it's an alien righteousness, that God gives him the righteousness as if you put on the robe of righteousness. Not something he had earned from inside, but something that was conferred from outside, a gift from God. And Luther broke through that crisis and preached the gospel of grace to people throughout Europe. But I give you one more example because I think it's important that we, we struggle with the radical nature of God's grace. Do you remember David, King David in Israel? And he had become king and Saul had been vanquished and Saul had died. And David had defeated all his enemies, the Philistines, and he kind of finally, finally relaxed. And if you read through the Psalms, you know, there are many occasions where David always had his his eyes going to and fro looking for enemies. And he says to Nathan the prophet, it's not right that I should live in a house of cedar And God should live in a tent. Remember the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle. It was a tent. It was moved from place to place. He said, I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan said to him, Nathan the prophet, his advisor, he said, do what God has put in your heart. And then Nathan that night has a dream and God appears to Nathan and Nathan gets this message from God. Tell David that I've been in a tent for many, many years and I'm happy to dwell in a tent. And who is David to build me a house? 
without my permission. And so Nathan takes that word back to David. David, God has said, it's not for you to build a temple for the Lord. It's for your son, someone that's going to be a descendant. We know that Solomon, his son, did that. Now, now why? Why did God tell David, you can't build me a temple? When it seems like David was doing a good thing. I'm in a nice house. Let's put God's temple and let's put the communion table and let's put the cross. Let's put it all in a temple of acacia wood. Put the pews out of cedar from Lebanon. Why did God say to David, no, not you? Is it possible, and I'm, I'm guessing, doesn't say in scripture, is it possible that David didn't have the grace comes without earning it lessened down yet? Is it possible God had to get a hold of David and teach David that, look, you gave me the victories, I built you a house, we're even. Maybe God had to take David and say, if you're going to be my vice regent, if you're going to be king over Israel, you have to know and understand the grace-filled life. And so we get David's prayer, 2 Samuel 7, if you want to read it later today. David's prayer after Nathan said, you're not going to build this house. And David has this wonderful prayer. God, you are the only God. You alone are great. And thank you for your message that you're going to build my house. Because part of it was David heard from the Lord that God would build a house for David. Not a physical house, but descendants. A legacy. A lineage. And David prays a prayer of thanksgiving. In God's economy, he does it all for us first. He makes the first move. He invites us to respond by receiving his grace with thanksgiving and praise. And once we've walked on that path, God says, I have work for you to do. Witness, service, mission, loving kindness, love your neighbor, love the stranger. But you can't get there until you walk the path of thanksgiving and praise. That's the message today. We have to learn that. We have to not jump and say, let me do this for God. We've got to let God do for us and fill our hearts full of thanksgiving and praise. Here's the first move. God calls us to receive his gifts. Here's the second move. We receive with thanks and praise. Here's the third move. God sends the Holy Spirit to empower us and transform us. Here's the fourth move. We move out as witnesses and servants. Don't miss the second move. Don't jump over thanksgiving and praise. Let me read you a poem. Do you know Wendell Berry? Wendell Berry, the poet, the short story writer, the Kentucky agrarian. He has a little Sabbath poem called, it's called Ten. It's the tenth poem. Whatever is foreseen in joy must be lived out from day to day. Vision held open in the dark by our 10,000 days of work. Harvest will fill the barn. For that, the hand must ache, the face must sweat. And yet no leaf or grain is filled by work of ours. The field is tilled and left to grace that we may reap. Great work is done while we're asleep. When we work well, a Sabbath mood 
rests on our day and finds it good. Let me repeat the most important line in this poem. Great work is done while we're asleep. We sleep and trust God to hold the world together and to do great work. One of my great privileges is to travel the world and see where God is visiting people with grace all over the world. One of the places that we have been able to forge a partnership is in Tajikistan. And in Tajikistan, there's a young woman who runs a women's shelter. And I met her several years ago there, and she told me her story, and I wept in a little living room as she told me about her own story and then the stories of women who came to them because Tajikistan is a a man's world and to truly do justice you have to win in the law courts and it's hard to get a lawyer to take the case of these women who have been abused, who have been trafficked, who have been sold into prostitution. But then I'm going to call her Rachel told me her story She said, you know, in our family, we had all girls, and my dad wanted a boy. So he took a second wife, and he bribed the imam so he could do that. And he tried to have a boy with his second wife. He had another girl. And we grew up, and it was that family and our family. But later, as young adults, my half-sister became a follower of Jesus, and she shared the gospel with me. And I was reconciled with the other side of my family, and I heard the good news, and God called me to help other women who have been cast aside or treated ill. And I saw such joy in her face at what God had done through unlikely means, through a half-sister that she wanted to hate but couldn't, and what God had called her to do. Tajikistan is a country you should put on your prayer list. Um, It's a former Soviet country, a Muslim country, a strong, struggling, oppressed church in that world. And on that same trip, we went on to uh, St. Petersburg, Russia, And there I met some Uzbek refugees. This will blow your categories, but there are a million Central Asian migrants in Moscow. And there are 400,000 Central Asian migrants in St. Petersburg. They've left their country for work or because they're Christians and had to flee. And so now they're in Russia with no citizenship, no status, trying to eke out a living, trying to practice their Christian faith. But we met one evening with these 10 little young Uzbek guys who were all working, worshiping, sharing the good news with others. And again, the joy that they had showed me that they had walked the path of thanksgiving and praise onto mission and service. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us not just to pass by this little American holiday, but help us to make it part of our lives, our attitude, our practices. Lord, give us your help to be not only 
your grace-filled people, but your grateful people as well. For we pray in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.